Well, you guys may be seated. It is a joy to be back with you today. My name is Walter. I'm grateful to be back here after two long weeks sojourning in the state of California. Um, lots of sun, lots of avocados, lots of craziness. We'll just end our conversation there. But it was a lot of fun. So thanks for letting me be gone for a few weeks working and vacationing. I want to make note of a few things as we get started. Uh, first and foremost, uh, this is typically where we address our ability to offer our uh, tithes and offerings. So you're able to give in a variety of ways. You can scan that QR code. You can give via text. You can give online. You can give as you exit. You know, if you still use these things called dollar bills, I don't know if you've seen those recently. Most people aren't using those anymore, right? You can give in any way the Lord may lead you, encourage you to do so as he may lead you. Now, as we begin, we're going to be continuing our study in the uh, book of Psalms. We're continuing our series in Summer in the Psalms, and I've titled this week's sermon, The Confident Life. We're going to be looking at Psalm chapter 16. You can go ahead and flip over there and have that as a reference. And as we continue our series in the Summer in the Psalms, the point of this is that we're considering ultimately how the scriptures would call us to live. That we're looking at our lives and we're trying to understand how are we to live in light of the scriptures. So today as we're looking at Psalm 16, I wanted to just begin with talking about when I was in California last week. You know, one of our uh, things that we were wanting to do while we were in California is that we wanted to drive down to San Diego and spend a few days there. And on our way down, we stopped at a bookstore. And as we stopped at this bookstore, we were walking around just kind of looking at stuff. And as I was wandering around this bookstore, I actually encountered the uh, self-help section. And some of you are thinking, thank God he finally found it. For the rest of you, though, you're thinking, what's the point of this, Right. So I walked around the self-help section just looking, and then I stopped and had to come back to take a look at all this. You see, when I stopped and came back to look at it, I I found that uh, this was a pretty large section of books. I counted seven full bookshelves, as tall as I am, which I know is not very tall, but still, as tall as I am, full of books in the self-help section, seven bookshelves. Now, I thought maybe this is just a mix of books, right? Maybe we've lumped a bunch of different categories together. Like maybe we've got diet and wellness, and we've got, you know, mental health, and we've got, you know, these different things lumped together here. And I started looking closely, and I was like, nope, nope. These are all completely focused on the internal work in our lives. That is things like dealing with stress, anxiety, healthy habits, setting goals, et cetera, all the what you would call traditional work of self-help books. Now, as we looked at it, I'd like to say that ultimately I was surprised by the number of books here, but the top percentage of books that are purchased in this world today are self-help books. You see, I, I believe that this is because people today, they're trying to function in our world and they're struggling to do so. What we see in a lot of research today is that external pressures, that is things that are pressing in upon us, are increasing in our world today. But for many people, the skills we have to deal with that, to cope with those things, are decreasing. Just some research I saw as I was preparing for this, you know, one area that we see this is an increased awareness of mental health. I saw that the latest research from last year said that almost a quarter of the adults in the U.S. are struggling with mental health issues. 23% of adults are struggling with things like depression, suicide, anxiety, that they're wrestling with these issues. 
It's worse when we start looking at young adults, so we're talking middle school, high school, even college age. One in three students say that they are dealing with depression. One in five students said they've experimented with self-harm or have considered taking their own life. I simply bring this up because to me, as I look at these things, as I look at these realities in our world, it's clear that people are struggling to make sense of how to deal with the world today. That we're, we're struggling. And I'd like to say that Christians are immune to these struggles, but frankly, if we're willing to be honest with one another, we would confess that we struggle with some of these very same things. We struggle with anxiety and stress. We struggle with depression. We struggle with negative self-images. Ultimately, we're just not content with who we are, or who, where we're going, or what we're trying to be, right? To do some uh, very loose research, I went on Amazon and looked at the top Christian books and Christian books and Bibles. The top 12 books you would think are dealing with things of perfectly spiritual nature, right? How do you read the book of Psalms, right? How do you preach a great sermon, right? How do you live the Christian life? No, the top 12 books are dealing with topics of finding real community because you're tired of being hurt. How to deal with a weary soul in a broken world. Setting healthy boundaries in our personal relationships and how to deal with those that won't respect them. Finding peace in a broken, difficult world. Those are the topics of the top 12 Christian books you can buy on Amazon right now. It's clear to me that we're all trying to find out how to deal with these issues within us and deal with these external pressures that we're experiencing. It's not just non-believers who are struggling with these things. It's believers. We are all wrestling with how do we deal with these issues inside and these things that are pressing in upon us. And so the question we have to ask is, what do we do about it? I want to be clear about something here as we're dealing with these things that we're not just dealing with spiritual issues here, that sometimes as we wrestle with these, it's true that we're going to need counseling and medical care to deal with these issues we're facing. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, we think some of these things are so helpful that this is why we support Dr. West so that he can provide some of this additional care for us, right? Absolutely nothing wrong with counseling. For others of us, we're wrestling with things. There's going to be a need for medication and for, for care from medical professionals, and that's okay. We thank God that in his good, common grace, he's provided resources and tools to the experts so that we might get the care we need. I want to be clear, there's nothing wrong with those things. And for many of these issues we're dealing with, perhaps those are the answer. But what I found in my years of ministry and of life is that so often the issues that I encounter in my life, ultimately there is a spiritual component that is at play here. There's a spiritual component that we can't forget about. Because even if we're working on these other areas, we still have to deal with who we are in light of who God is. Now with that, I believe that for many of us, many of our issues are ultimately rooted in our lack of of confidence in God. Simply put, we think that we can figure things out for ourselves because we're strong or smart or capable. We've embodied that American spirit of we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we can make this work. 
We think we can only go to God when things are hard, when we're hurting, when we're broken, or when we're in over our head, right? Simply put, I I believe that so often today we live as practical atheists, that God is only existing or he's only needed for us when we are too far gone for us to be able to pull ourselves out of it. He's only there when things are too broken and someone's got to come clean up our mess. If that's how you're feeling, and I recognize that's where I get sometimes, that I think I can do it all on my own. But if you're feeling this weight, how do we find this confidence in God again? How do we find it? Because we know that when we became believers, we had that confidence, and maybe we have it now, but it's been shaken, and we're looking for something to solidify it. Where can we find that confidence? Well, I think our answer to that is to do just as David did here in this psalm. You see, he looked back at his life, and he reflected that not just these great things that God has done for him, but he also sees that God has promised he would do further things for him. He considered these ideas and ultimately he found confidence in God because of God's consistent mercy to him. And so our solution of how we find this confidence either for the first time or how we find this confidence again is to look back at God's continual mercy in our lives. I think that's the tenor that David writes this psalm in. He's approaching this from an older man in his life writing about his story. And I think we see that being put on display. Now, because it's a little bit of a longer psalm, I won't read it and have you stand up. We'll just jump straight into it. And I want you to get to point one. One of the reasons we have confidence is because of God's care. One of the reasons we have confidence in this life is because of God's care. I'll read verses one through three for us. David begins writing, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. See, we have confidence because of God's care. As David begins this psalm, he's looking at God's care for him. And he begins with this request, really, preserve me. He's certainly speaking in what seems to be a physical sense here. He's talking about preserve me in this physical body. Take care of me. He's asking for protection, for care, for someone to look out for him. Essentially, he's appealing to God's roots as a shepherd, right? This is how God is described continually through the scriptures. He's the shepherd who walks with us, who cares for us, who looks out for us. It's a component of who he is, but that's there. Now, he keeps going with this statement here where he says that, For in you I take refuge. Now, this is an interesting statement because he trusts that God's going to provide this refuge, this rest here. I think it's interesting as we look at this. I did a little research, and in my Hebrew class, I got a C, which means complete, okay? So I'm not an expert. But as I looked at this word, the word for refuge here, this can actually not just mean refuge, but also is commonly translated as trust. We'll look at that again. Preserve me, O God, for in you I trust. Now we're getting somewhere in the understanding of what's happening here. 
See, David is saying that he's not just going to find physical refuge with God, but he's trusting in him and him alone to provide this. He's saying, preserve me, O God. Why? Because in you I trust. He's pointing to this commitment he's making before the Lord. He's saying, I trust you, Lord. And because I trust you, because I have placed my faith in you, I know that my faith will not be found in vain. I know that you preserving me is going to be rooted in this fact that I trust you. Not because of anything I've done, but because I trust you. Now, as we look at this, I think this is a really big statement from David, right? If you don't know who David is, let me give you a little bit of a breakdown, right? David is a king in the Old Testament. He's the appointed king. The line of Jesus runs through him, right? But he's also a really impressive guy physically. Just as a teenager, he stands up against Goliath and the entire army of the Philistines, where the entire nation of Israel is quaking in fear of this champion of the Philistines. He's offended that Goliath is insulting his God. He steps up with a slingshot to take this guy on. Goliath is like seven, eight feet tall. He's a giant. He's a scary guy. And David, as a teenager, steps up and it kills him with a slingshot. Obviously, he's a brave man. As we look throughout the Old Testament, he's described in 1 Samuel as striking down tens of thousands of men. He's considered to be one of the greatest warriors within the nation of Israel. That even today, modern Israelites look back at King David and say, that is the warrior king. He's obviously strong and physically capable, right? Like, you don't get a reputation as someone who's killed tens of thousands of people without being physically capable. Does this paint the picture of someone who needs refuge or protection? Well, no, it, it doesn't, but I think this gives us an insight. I want to borrow from a guy that I've read from uh, named Jocko Willick. Jocko Willicks, a former Navy SEAL who writes a lot about leadership. And I think that there's something he says about humility that's found in David. You see, he argues that true humility is found when you can acknowledge the superior skills and wisdom of someone else. He's saying when you don't have to be the biggest dog in the room and you can say that's okay, you're actually humble. I think David has found this humility. See, I think David is recognizing that by human standards, he's extremely capable, right? And this guy is incredibly strong, gifted, talented, brave. I mean, he's everything you would look to as stereotypical manhood, right? Yet even in the midst of that, he knows his limits and he knows that he is nothing but a child in comparison to the strength and power of God. You see, in this verse alone, he is declaring to the world that I'm willing to place everything in the hands of God and depend upon him rather than my own personal strength. See, this is confidence. This is confidence that you will fully place everything, including your life, in the hands of someone else. That's confidence. That's trust on full display. And so as David begins with verse 1, he is saying the part of his root of his confidence is that he trusts completely in God to care for him. Now he doesn't end the psalm there. He continues in verse 2. And he's giving us in verse 2 a reason, a strong reason of why he's willing to trust God. 
I'll read verse 2 again. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. You see, he believes that all things that are good in this world ultimately come from God. He's being very clear there. He's saying very clearly, I have no good apart from you. All good things come from him. This is a familiar refrain, something we find in the New Testament. Perhaps you're familiar with the book of James, chapter 1, right? Verses 16 and 17, where I'm paraphrasing, but James essentially says that every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. See, there's this consistency in the Bible as we look from the Old to the New Testament that ultimately declares that the source of goodness is God. Not only is he the source of goodness, but ultimately we are learning about his character here. David has this assurance that all good things are going to come from God. See, he's not trying to find satisfaction here in earthly things money or people or these other things that might provide some satisfaction. I want to take an aside here and just simply state as I was doing some research for the sermon, I couldn't really find anything that that nailed down when this psalm was written, right? Sometimes we have some time period based upon uh, some surrounding context, events they reference, those sort of things. And I couldn't really find anything for this psalm. Maybe it was written early in his life. Maybe it was written later. But I really believe as I read this psalm, and maybe this is me looking into it, so this isn't gospel here. But I really believe that this is written later in David's life. You see, I believe that David, as we look at his life, has made some massive mistakes that will show the truth of these words to him. I think if you're familiar with David and his life, you might remember the story of Bathsheba, right? David, rather than doing the things that kings would do, which is go to war for themselves and fight for their nation, he decided that he would let his generals and his armies go to fight. He would stay at home and take a bath and lounge around. And in the midst of that, he sees this woman that he describes as a beautiful woman bathing on the other roof. And what happens in the midst of this? Well, he chooses to find satisfaction in earthly things by committing adultery with Bathsheba. You see, this adulterous episode ended so poorly that not only did he commit adultery and wreck his reputation, ruin his career, to say, but it led to him killing her husband so that he could try and hide his mistake. You see, I think David is writing these words because he's more able to fully appreciate how only good things can come from God and by walking in the path of the Lord. I think he's learned from his consequences. And it was a very memorable lesson for him. And so as we look at this, just I think it's helpful to recognize that perhaps David is writing this in his later years, looking back on his life going, if I had held firm to these things, where would I be? If I had been faithful to live as Christ intended me to live, where would I be? I think it gives us some light as he looks at verse 3. Verse 3 declares that as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. He's saying that he delights of being with those who follow God. He loves God's people. He finds joy in those relationships. Why? Why does it satisfy him? Well, I think that perhaps it's because they understand what he's going through in his journey with God. 
You see, he and the people that follow God have been united together by a shared experience of God's goodness. See, David's been wrestling with God's care and his trust goes deeper than just his personal relationship, right? He's completely dependent upon God. And in the midst of that resting, that trusting him for care, he also recognizes that everything he has comes from God. Again, this is why I think there's support for David writing this as an older man, because in the next section, he begins writing about God's provision. And he's writing about God's provision. And I would argue from the perspective of having seen it all be taken away, he knows the frailty of his power. He knows just how far in his own strength, ability, and skills he can take it. And the furthest he can take it is into ruin and death. That takes us into our second point that we have confidence in God because of God's provision. We have confidence because of God's provision. Look with me at verse 4 through 8. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out nor take the names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. The night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he has met my right hand. I shall not be shaken. David begins this section with acknowledging that he knows that all he has in his life comes from God. Everything he's got is coming from the Lord. He starts here with verse 4 and Verse 4, I think, fits into this idea, even though it doesn't seem so at first glance, right? Like you read this and you're going, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Well, what does this have to do with God's provision? Well, I think David understands that finding goodness in this life begins with saying no. Finding goodness in this life begins with saying no. You see, for us as believers, finding goodness in this life begins when we say no to sin. We say no to our sin heart and trust in Jesus for forgiveness. We look to Christ and we cry out, I am broken and in need of salvation. I'm saying no to my earthly sinful desires and I'm saying yes to the heavens. That we find goodness when we begin to say no. You see, David is looking around at those who do not serve God, and he sees that there is nothing good in their lives. Just as we look at the lives of some people we know who don't follow Jesus, and we shudder at the places that their sin is taking them, right? To the depths of depravity, we see friends, family, those we care about, mere acquaintances. We see the depths that sin will take you to. David looks around and goes, finding goodness begins with saying no. Keep in mind, David's not passing judgment upon them here. He's merely making an observation that in order to follow God, I have to say no to certain things. I can't chase after certain things. I think what we see here is that he's modeling the words of Jesus for us. Those familiar words, take up your cross and follow me. There are just some things that we have to say no to in order to follow Jesus. 
That there are just some things that we cannot do as believers, right? Like I don't have to give you a laundry list of what these things are, but you know following God means there are things that are okay to do and there are things that you cannot do. Simply, easy for us to understand. But it's this idea that I think gives greater support to David writing this psalm later in his life. You see, I read this as someone who's fully aware of the cost of sin. He understands exactly what sin will cost him, both in his relationships with people and with God. See, I read this as a man who's writing this, and he knows just how far sin will take him. And he's telling us to stay far, far away from it. You see, I would submit to you that this is a part of God's provision for us. Just as we might remember past physical pain and behave a little bit more cautiously, we're intended to remember our past pain from sin and behave cautiously. When I was a kid, uh, I was probably Perry's age. I can't tell you exactly how old I was. And I was helping my mother in the kitchen. We were starting to cook dinner, and uh, she cuts the stove on. We had one of those uh, older coil stoves. You know what I'm talking about, right? And as this stove cuts on, my mother has cut it on. And I look at it, and it's as black as can be. Because, you know, those things, they used to heat up nice and red and then cool down, right? And I told her that this thing isn't on. And to prove it, I slapped my thumb right on the stove. Well, one, my fingerprint's still a little funny on that thumb. But two, I learned very quickly that just because it's not red doesn't mean it ain't hot. I've never forgotten that lesson. I have never put my thumb so confidently on something that might be hot since then. I remember the past pain. To be fair, I don't even remember the pain. I remember the consequences. This is a part of God's provision. That just as I am more cautious around things that might be hot than I was at seven or eight, we're intended to look back on our sin and to reflect upon the pain that it brought us, the consequences of our actions, and go, sin bad. Stay away. I know it's a simple concept, but God has wired us so inherently a part of this Imago day that he has created us in his image, that we have a natural aversion to this idea of repeating sin. That when we come to Jesus and we now are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, we now are able to say, no, sin is bad and I should stay far away from it. This is indeed a part of God's provision. Now David keeps going as he's addressing God's provision in verses Five and six, and he's using some language the people of Israel would actually immediately understand, right? He uses these references to things like portions, lots, lines, inheritance, right? And for us, those perhaps don't carry a whole lot of weight right off the get go. Yet, these words he's writing, he's speaking, these are words that the Israelites would have understood because he's referring to the division of the land to the people of Israel. If you remember, from our Old Testament stories here. As we look back at the Old Testament and the scriptures, we recognize that when the people of God had conquered the land, God then divided up the land among all the tribes so that everyone had a home. Everyone had a place to call their own. Everyone had what was necessary for their survival and prosperity in this new, beautiful land. 
See, David is reminding himself and those that are listening of God's goodness in providing for him. By all metrics and standards, we look back on what we understand about David's rule and reign, even Solomon's rule and reign, is that David was quite wealthy. That he was actually probably an incredibly wealthy man by our standards. But right here, he's proclaiming that it all ultimately came from God. Why? Well, again, I think about David writing this as an older gentleman here. In his later years, he can look back and see that he has lost everything because of his mistakes. He can look back and reflect that he lost everything because he thought that he knew better than God. He lost sight of this truth that God had provided everything and he falsely began to believe that he had done it himself. He believed this idol that I am King David. I have changed Israel. Look at how people bow down to me. Look how they rejoice when I'm near. He lost sight that he was establishing a kingdom for God, not a cult of personality that would worship him. David writes these, I think again, as an older man, looking back at all the mistakes he's made and going, the thing that I need to remember is that God has provided for me continually. He gives us this final reminder of God's provision here in verses 7 and 8. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he has met my right hand, I shall not be shaken. You read that, and it maybe inherently doesn't seem like it's a part of God's provision, but I would submit to you that as he's describing God's counsel and his steadfastness presence, he's ultimately talking about God's provision for him. See, he's indicating that through the day and through the night, God is with him. He's guiding him. He's his right hand, supporting him, counseling him, holding him steady. See, God's guidance and wisdom in our life is indeed a provision from him. Simply as we think about this, God shows us how to live. He shows us how to live and he directs our paths with his word. That's another familiar refrain, right? You see, he's giving us instructions on how we are to live a fruitful and faithful life. I think, it's, I think it's safe to say that as we look at this idea of provision, that's exactly what it's supposed to look like. We've been given exactly what we need to not only grow, but thrive. What David is telling us is that God has given us exactly what we need to live a life that would honor him. David would also tell us that it's up to us to see and use these provisions in a way that honors God. David could speak very clearly about the experience that he has in ignoring the counsel of God. Frankly, David could probably write a few books about what the consequences are of ignoring the counsel of God. He was really good at that. Yet, even as he's writing writing these words, he's very clear that we've been given exactly what we need. It's up to us to trust that God knows better than we do. 
See, David is saying, I have confidence because of God's provision, because he's given me everything that I need to make it work for his glory. He gave me strength. He gave me skills. He gave me courage. He gave me wise counsel. He gave me prosperity. He gave it all to me. Yet where does David end his life? Alone, abandoned, broken and poor. See, David would tell us that he had it all, the complete package. As they refer to him in baseball, he's a five-tool player. He can do it all. And he still failed. And David would tell you that's not the fault of the Lord. That's his fault. For not trusting for not truly resting in the confidence that he has in the Lord. Now, despite these several verses that David has written here, he would ultimately tell us that his confidence is not fully rooted in just God's care and God's provision. Those are important. Those are components of it, but they matter ultimately because of the third point. This is why David can write these words in confidence because he would tell us that we are to have confidence because of God's victory. We're to have confidence because of God's victory. Look with me at verses 9 through 11. Therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So David begins with this therefore, right? And so he's looking back on these verses he's written. He's saying, because of these things, my heart is glad. My whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. It's an interesting statement, right? Because we know that David dies and we know that he's buried in a tomb and we know that he, after a few hundred or a few thousand years or whatever the time period is, his body's decayed. It's not in good shape. He's dead and dead things decay. Like we know this. But he declares that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Where is this confidence coming from? Where is he getting this idea from? Well, David writes these verses, and we actually have seen these verses a few times in our series in the book of Acts. They actually should be pretty familiar to you because we've seen several sermons from the book of Acts that have directly quoted these verses for us. You see, we see them over in chapter 2 of Acts where Peter's giving his sermon at Pentecost. He quotes these words as an assurance about why they believe Jesus is the Messiah. No, furthermore, why they know Jesus is the Messiah. Paul quotes these words in Acts 13 when he's preaching the gospel in Antioch and he's proclaiming this good news that Jesus has risen from the grave. He's saying, David is dead in the tomb, but guess who lives? The true king, Jesus. You see, the early church looked back on these verses that David wrote, and they looked at them as evidence of God's promise to David, yes, but also, more importantly, as a foreshadowing of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, David, throughout this psalm, I think, has been giving us this, 
this image of being face-to-face with God. He's speaking to God, perhaps. He's declaring these things before him. Yet we see this intimacy here change from this temporary thing to an eternal sense, right? David's writing this about the coming Messiah because he has confidence in his victory. No, not in his personal victory, but in the victory that the Messiah will have. See, he knows that he's going to die. He knows that his body is going to decay and, and break down. And he knows that hundreds of years from now, thousands of years from now, that they will know his name. They might even know where he's buried, but there'll be nothing there. Just a bunch of decayed bones, old rags, useless things. He's not writing about himself here, but he's writing about this resurrected Savior, Jesus. That's why he declares so clearly, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. He's saying, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. He's pointing to Jesus. My soul will not be abandoned in Sheol, because you're going to make a way for me to have this eternal relationship with you through your Son, Jesus. This is why the early church consistently referenced this passage. They talked about it multiple times, referencing several sermons we have recorded because they knew that David did not have this hope, this confidence in vain. The apostles, over 500 people that 1 Corinthians tells us, they saw the resurrected Savior. And what every one of them would proclaim is that David did not hope in vain because his Savior lives. David did not hope in vain because though he was crucified, though he was dead, though he was buried, three days later, he walked out of that tomb. The early church looked back at this and said David could have confidence because of God's victory. Furthermore, David knew he could have confidence because he knew the promise of the victory that was to come. See, the early church and and David, they rest their confidence in what we see in verse 11. See, in verse 11 it reads, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see, their great hope, Jesus' great hope, is that the path of life leads through death into everlasting joy with God. See, this is the hope that we have, that death is not the end. It was not the end for Jesus. And because of this, it will not be the end for you or for I or for David. You see, this is the victory that David is resting in. The victory of Jesus through his resurrection. Simply today, as we look at why we should have confidence, why we should live a confident life. Yes, we should have confidence because God's cared for us. He's walking with us. He's a shepherd, as you can say. Yes, we can have confidence because he's provided for us. He's given us all that we have in this life. He's providing for his people. But all these things are rooted in the fact that if that's all that God did, 
we would have a good life and then we die. And that's the end of the story. No, these are rooted in this final section that we have confidence because of God's victory. These are rooted in the fact that because Jesus died and now lives, we one day too will die, but we will live. This is the hope, the great hope that we have as Christians. And so simply put, I I would ask you this, do you have this confidence in Jesus? Because you may be here and you're a believer and you're saying, yes, I have that confidence in Jesus. Then dear sister, dear brother, rest in that. Know that life is tough. Things are hard. But one day, God will make all things right. One day, there'll be eternal peace, rest, joy, and satisfaction. And though we labor and toil until that day comes, that sweet day will arrive. We have confidence in that. But perhaps you're here and you don't trust in Jesus. Maybe you don't even know where you stand with the Lord. My statement to you would be ultimately that if you do not have assurance of this confidence, that you must wrestle with your heart. You must ask this question, what are you putting your confidence in? Is it yourself or is it in Jesus? Are you living your life as a practical atheist? And I come to Jesus when things get hard, when things are tough, or are you living your life as if Jesus is the only answer? I would submit to you that perhaps you need to look upon the Savior in his glory and confess the fact that you're a broken sinner in need of salvation and allow him to offer that free gift of grace that he'll bestow upon any man, woman, or child who calls out to him for salvation. The choice is yours. You can choose to have confidence in Jesus is eternal above all or you can have confidence in these earthly things that fade and perish just like David's body in that tomb here in the next few minutes you'll have opportunity to wrestle with those questions that we'll go into a time of prayer it'll be a time of silent prayer to begin with for you to reflect and wrestle with these ideas and then I'll close us with a few words of praying and asking God to move in our hearts After that, our worship team will lead us in a time of worship and rejoicing in the goodness of the Savior. And then we'll close and go about our day. My hope and my prayer is that when we close, it is not closing with confusion or or a lack of understanding in your life, but you have clarity about who Jesus is and what he has done for you. If I can be of any service to you in that, please speak to me. I would love to share what the Lord has done in my life and what he can do in yours. If you would, can we go to the Lord in prayer together? Father, you are good. You are a good, gracious God who is kind and benevolent to his people. Lord, as we come to you today, we're coming to you asking for confidence. 
We're coming and asking for confidence not do a dangerous task. We're not asking for confidence to ask for a raise. We're not asking for confidence to believe in ourselves. <laughs> Lord, we are asking for confidence in you. Lord, that for all of us, as we look back on our lives, we reflect upon the things that are happening in our world, that are happening in our midst, that are happening in our lives. We're asking, where can we find confidence and assurance from? The only place the only place that will matter, the only place that will stand the test of time is finding it from you, Lord. And so, Father, as we, as we ascend to that, we recognize that this only begins with us trusting in Jesus. But we find this confidence, we access it only by looking to Jesus, by repenting of our sins, trusting in him for eternal life and for salvation, and living as if he is the living, true God. So, Father, that is what I ask for those that have gathered, that if there are any here listening or, or present among us, if they do not trust in you, Father, I pray that they would repent today. For those of us that follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. You would remind us of the victory we have in you. Give us an extra measure of this confidence so that we might find our way in a weary, difficult world. Lord, empower us, fill us with your spirit so that we might fully see and experience your goodness and grace. Lord, it is my prayer that you are with us now, that you would work and move in this place, open our hearts and minds to be receptive to the good news that Jesus Christ has come to seek and save the lost. Be with us now, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.